This is Jeremy Hildreth, and my guest today is Parag Khanna, who's kind of a buddy of mine, I guess you'd say. We've known each other a long time, and we're about the same age. He's a couple of years younger, and we don't see very much of each other. He lives in Singapore. I live in London. Um, we're both American, um, but it's always in some random place, like down an alley in Shanghai, I remember once having a drink with him, down some hutong. Uh, I think we've never hung out in the same place twice, actually. So it's no surprise whatsoever that the last place I saw him was in Moscow, Russia, at the Moscow Urban Forum, where I interviewed him up on stage about his new book called Connectography. The point of my podcast, this podcast, generally speaking, is to have conversations with remarkable people who've lived interesting lives so far. And Parag meets that description to a T. He's a traveler, a thinker, he's an integrator, which is something very important to me, something I look for in people, something that's a very rare talent, skill, knack of of uh, combining things, uh, putting things together, seeing the big picture and how it connects to the details. Um, I love this. I love this about him. Uh, his book, Connectography, will enlighten you. It will help you use the right maps to see and understand the modern world and direction or directions that we're moving in. It's not an easy read particularly, but it is a nutritious one. And if you like what you hear in the interview, you, uh, regard that as a kind of a sampler and, and go get his book. I'll give you a couple of examples from the blurbs. Connectography is as compelling and richly expressive as the ancient maps from which it draws its inspiration. I like that one. Reading connectography is a real adventure. Oh, I certainly concur. A provocative remapping of contemporary capitalism based on planetary mega-infrastructures, intercontinental corridors of connectivity, and transnational supply chains. <laughs> anyway, you get the idea, and I promise you it's a hell of a book. So, let's go now to the audio tape. For the benefit of the audience, uh, Parag and I are sitting outside of a makeshift patio on a developer's <laughs> demo uh, in a corner. How do you of like the, this astroturf? Yeah, <laughs> astroturf beneath our feet. There's a gigantic. How big is that thing? That's quite a mural. It's a gigantic Photo. mural, photographic mural, or very detailed painting of Moscow. It's as though we were on the the roof of a very expensive. Apartment. Yes, this would be uh, a multi-million dollar apartments terrace that we would have been on. Were we not actually indoors in a giant <laughs> if this view hangar? Were real, if this view were there real. would be three people in the world who yeah. could afford it. Yes, <laughs> and all three of them would be Russian billionaires. That is true. So Nassim Taleb, the black swan guy, coined this term fairly recently, intellectual yet idiot, IYI. Which is I've on. never heard that. That's You've awesome. not heard this. Okay. When did he coin that? Mm, he's writing his latest book, kind of serialized on Medium. Yeah, I know. And somewhere along, yeah, yeah maybe six months ago. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've. He I've blurred my last book. I'm a big fan of his. We have the same editor, actually. Yeah, and he called you a visionary. Which he did. You always got to like a guy. Who visionary, calls a visionary is better than idiot. So yeah, <laughs> I'll accept his compliment. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he coined this term intellectual yet idiot to describe people who are book smart but 
know nothing. One of the reasons I like talking to you is because you have traveled so much. I said when I introduced you on stage just now um, that you're a traveler first and foremost, and then these other things kind of follow on from you. You and I are you don't travel because you on that road of life. You and me. <laughs> well, there's there's the, yeah there's that meaning of travel. But but what do you think separates you from? I mean, you're not an armchair pontificator or an ivory tower academic. You you really travel and see things firsthand, and that's really important. I mean, I learned that when the first time, um, it's the only time, I've been to Burma, retracing the old Burma road yeah. um, when that really wasn't. Uh, my passport said land route not permissible right. on the Burmese visa. Yeah. So we did the land route. And seeing children, 9, 10, 11 years old, building the road with their bare hands. Yeah. Uh, in East Timor also, seeing child labor, yeah. kids with their moms, you know, f- little kids, three, four, five years old with their moms in the coffee, yeah. th- moving the beans around yeah. and realizing actually, okay, so child labor isn't something you'd get rid of just by passing a law. Like this is this oh. is the culture. And I was this just is, this in, is where uh, they are right now. I was just in Northeastern India. And it's not some India, kind of immoral still. thing. It's, yeah. it's just how it is with that Absolutely. situation. So seeing things firsthand is so, is so crucial. But I don't have any difficulty saying that I'm a first and foremost traveler. I mean, it's empirically true, right? Way before I went to college, I was traveling. You know, I was just raised that way. It's purely accidental. Um, born in India, grew up in Abu Dhabi, Dubai, New York, Germany. So by the time I was 16, I'd been to a lot of places and uh, accumulated identities. And I just always wanted to travel. And then my first book contract was all about getting a publisher to pay for my travel. Life today is still about who will pay for my travel uh, as much as anything else. And and again, acquiring a PhD along the way doesn't change my identity. I'm, that I'm not suddenly first and foremost an academic. Now, it is true that once you are an academic, you're always an academic. You can always go and teach if you want to. So it is. there is something immutable or irreversible about that particular certification. But like your deeper essence, you're still a traveler, right? And all I try to do uh, is to blend those two methodologies. But do you, you know? feel sometimes, going back to Nassim Taleb and the, and the IYI intellectual yet idiot, sometimes you're sitting next to someone at the dinner table at a conference who hasn't traveled as much, but has the opinions time, yeah. around the same topics that you have opinions on, but somehow it's not been informed by their travels and it suffers from it. Okay, so this is a great question and a great point and I don't I didn't think that I would have such a definitive answer on this but I actually am pretty confident that I do it is far more likely that the academic who hasn't traveled is going to be the idiot than the traveler who isn't an academic so the traveler and I have no reason to have again I wear both hats I can be try to be impartial if I think back to all the dinners or all the lunches or all the lectures and events that I've, you know, seminars I've sat in on or been in and you, you have as well, look back and reflect on the last 40 years in the, in the next five seconds. And what does your gut tell you? When someone has said something dumb, was it in all likelihood the person who's traveled or the person who's just the pinhead? 99 out of 100, come on, it's actually the pinhead. So... I would say that my bias, maybe this is why my intuitive bias is still towards the traveler side of me than the academic side of me. The academic side of you can help you, but the traveler is rarely wrong. Now, again, I've got academic heroes and I've got traveler heroes. When push comes to shove, 
you know, and there's a there's a very vicious debate going on, let's say, you know, in uh, in some journal between the traveler and the academic, usually side with the traveler. Let's just that half of me, that brain. I don't know if it's the left or the right or the front or the back. <laughs> that side of me, I think, is the one that you, one that everyone, quite frankly, should rely on more. Trust the traveler. Well, again, the traveler, though, you know, the traveler will be helped by having by asking tough questions. You know, I was having a lunch yesterday in Moscow. Yeah, you can, your eyes can deceive yeah. you when traveling. Your eyes sure. can deceive you. That's very well put. And, you know, you may not be seeing the full picture. So, again, I mean, you know, I don't know. We haven't talked about it quite in this way before. But when I do my books, I first read, like, everything I possibly can read about where I'm going or the issue. Then I go there. And then I see what the reality is versus what I've read. Then I go back and try and fuse the two together and reconcile them. Like that, if you want to be complete or comprehensive or rigorous, that to me is the best that you can do as a one-man show. So we're at this conference, the Moscow Urban Forum, and we were just up on stage and I was, your book is out, Connectography, and I was asking you questions uh, about it. And a couple of the questions were all right, I'll, re- I'll repeat them. So, so I asked you about I said a lot of a lot of people today regard themselves as anti-globalists. What do they mean by that? And in what ways are they actually correct to be suspicious, angry, or concerned about globalization? And in what ways are they just you know completely out to lunch? Right. So you know, and and, and uh, my response to that is first of all, do you know what globalization is? Right. Do you define it simply as my job was offshored? When I was, you know, I had a steady job making X dollars an hour at a Ford automobile plant, and uh, and now that job is gone to a worker in Thailand. Therefore, I'm anti-globalization. That's defining globalization rather narrowly, right? As opposed to realizing, oh wait a minute, over that same period of time, the cost, you know, what I spend on a pair of jeans and an iPhone, and um, and uh, my, you know, entertainment and all these other things has gone way, way, way down because of globalization, right? And not to mention it's not all economic either. There's all sorts of other auxiliary ways in which we're globalizing, um, you know, as a civilization. So, first of all, people have a very, when it suits their purposes, they have a very narrow reading of globalization. I love hearing or reading not love in the literals. I think it's kind of, uh, it makes me just crack up. When people say globalization has fallen off a cliff. I mean, how many times in the last one year have I read, again, these secondhand pseudo, <laughs> pseudo intellectuals writing, globalization has fallen off a cliff because it turns out their evidence is the deceleration of global goods trade over the last, say, like three years. So, in other words, deceleration doesn't mean reversal. Deceleration means something is still moving forward, but it's just not moving forward as fast. So it's still expanding. It hasn't contracted, but apparently it's fallen off a cliff. Then it's... It's like budget cuts. Yeah. It's a cut in the growth rate of something. And and then people... And then, of course, you're measuring only goods. Well, what about services? What about the fact that the services trade in the world is catching up to the goods trade in the world uh, in terms of its value, in terms of global value added to GDP, 
that's neglected because these economists are only counting the number of tankers that docked in a pier and how many containers were off. Well, that's not what the world is anymore, right? Um, that's only a partial slice. So people like, everyone seems to want to have their own globalization and their own definition of globalization, which is incredibly narrow and uh, self-serving. And I find that inexcusably pathetic because globalization is much bigger than all of that. It's bigger than all of that sort of put together in many ways. So you can't credibly be anti-globalization once you understand what globalization is. Instead, to be more accurate, the people who call themselves anti-globalists are actually protesting domestic failures to manage and adapt and harness globalization. That's really, when you throw out your government in the UK or US, um, it's not because you hate China inherently, you because had your government invested in the reskilling, in your reskilling towards a better job after you lost your job in auto, an automobile plant to Thailand or China, you would not have voted for Trump. Not necessarily, right? Um, Some would. You'd be I, let, think no, a, okay. I think it's a broad-based coalition. It's, it's, yeah, okay, fine. I think Brexit and Trump are very but different. Let's just talk regard. about those who call themselves the anti-globalists and yeah. that motivation for their vote, right? Yeah. That motivation would fall away if you had a better job. You'd say, oh, thank God I'm not, you know, getting my arm broken in on an assembly line. Instead, I'm actually doing, I'm working on my snazzy MacBook Air, designing this high-tech anti-lock braking sensor now, right? And I'm getting paid three times as much. Thank you, globalization, because now I just zapped that design over from my laptop to those poor suckers in Thailand, and they're going to now... 3D printed and manufactured and put it together and they're going to make half as much. Now, guess what? There are places in the world where exactly that's happened. It's called Germany. It's called Switzerland. It's called Korea. It's called Singapore. It's called Finland, right? That have, that have actually moved their workers up the value chain because they paid attention to the dynamics of globalization. They knew that it's not always win-win. And so their workers have adjusted. Do, do you see Donald Trump coming to power, sweeping to power in those countries? You don't. So... Whose fault is it, is my bottom line response. Is it really China's fault? Is it globalization's fault? Is it, or is it your own goddamn government's fault? And the answer is, please blame yourself before you blame anyone else. And any conversation like this inevitably leads to... Um, well, I mean, you and I are interesting because we both I do think both you're very from, interesting. Huh? <laughs> I think you you're do, very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Because uh, we, we're we sort of citizens of the world. Someone asked me a few minutes ago, someone asked me a few minutes ago what, what my identities were. She was surprised to discover I was American. She thought I was British. Um, and my identities have, have shifted. I mean, they, they, they layer and they, they interrelate. There's Californian is, is a big one. American is, is in there. British is, is much lower down the list. I don't mm -hmm. feel particularly British culturally or... Um, or politically, uh, Jewishness is in there somewhere, but it's down the list as well. Um, and I, a human is a big part of that's one of my chief identities. is is an identity with my species. It's a species is, level orientation. Is I anyone like. challenging that identity? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> On bad days, do you feel like if you if you don't declare yourself to be a member of the human race, that that will be taken away from you. But I'm talking about experientially, <laughs> you know, moment to moment, yeah. day to day, but like, that's how I feel. I feel yeah. like 
you know, maybe we, it's there, but for the grace yeah. of God or whatever the expression. You know, is. I mean, I, I uh, and you're also sort of a you've yeah. got a mongrel background and a traveled background, and you don't live anywhere near where yeah. you were born. You know, this was one of the most fun parts of the book to do because it's not my conventional area of research or expertise. I mean, you know, kind of global anthropology in a big you know, sort of sense of the word and looking at kind of human genetic mingling over uh, millions of years is something I get into in the book. And I did my own cheek swab with National Geographic. That was kind of funny. And it proved how mongrel I sort of am in that ancient sort of, you know, uh, ethnographic sense of being a mishmash. And, and, And as has been demonstrated by that experiment or process that they're that they're taking with people's genetic ancestry is that we're all much more mongrel than we think. And it leads into this discussion of how identity is not, you know, something that other people just get to dictate to you. Oh, you look like a white guy, so you're just a white American. You're not allowed to simultaneously be a millennial, an environmentalist, you know, a um, uh, or, or whatever. Apparently, other you cause. can't be gay and conservative. That's not allowed. <laughs> well, apparently, there are some who are quite uh, provocative. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But point being that you know, I like to think now that everyone has the right to tell you what their identity is, rather than having to conform to this tick the box. Now, of course, there are boxes you have to tick. You want to get a driver's license somewhere, you got to tick the box. But how do you feel about your identity? So when I, you know, I was born in India, I was an Indian citizen, I became an American, I'm an American, and uh, but it doesn't mean I'm not Indian. I'm still ethnically Indian. I still have, have feelings for India. I lived in Germany. I'll never be a German citizen, but I speak German. And when I go to Germany, I really get treated like, you know, pretty much a local. I've been living in and out of there for a really long time. And of course, I'll never be German, but I feel German and weird. My it's wife, part of your my, identity. My wife is always saying, "You're so German," <laughs> you know, when I do certain things. I'm obviously not German. Like, I, who could be less German than a random Punjabi guy, you know, who grew up in uh, in the Middle East and in New York? But really, I feel as at home in Berlin as in you know places that I've lived even longer. So you know, I'll never be German in your point of view, but I have the right to say to you, I feel pretty German, right? Yeah. And that's that's my point, is that you, the individual, why don't why why are we always telling people their identity rather than asking them their identity? But my what I wanted to get into with that is do people need a certain amount of tribal identity and does some of that come from nations and is that or nationhood and is some yeah. of that what we're getting with the pushback but what is this on, whole on immigration, need? you know, better better yeah. Better fences make good neighbors, and those but kinds of expressions. You, yeah, but, but all of it, obviously, what citizenship means yeah. is gonna need to change. You and know, even the way you've like framed the question, like, doesn't there have to be like some basic level of tribalism, and isn't the tr- conventional sense of nationhood an essential foundation of good fences and good neighbors? And the answer. Well, I didn't say that it was is, essential. Right, I mean, do do not currently a lot of people get it from there. And of is, course, is most that, of the they world's feel it under, they population don't know yet know that they don't need to get it from there. Look, most of the world's population has never left the country that they were born in. Most of the world's population doesn't have a passport, right? I'm thinking about that not from the pers- this issue, not from the perspective of the Davos man with the Norwegian passport who gets to go anywhere they want. I'm actually saying that it's precise as it turns out. I cite this BBC survey uh, poll that was done around the world that asked people, "Do you feel like you are a global citizen?" 
And the highest percentages came from people in developing countries, people in India, people in Nigeria, people in Brazil. The majority of those people will never leave the country they were born in, and yet they're giving the highest percentage response to saying, I am not only just an Indian, even though I'll never leave India, I also feel like I'm a global citizen. And what I explain in the book is that's not, people think that's ironic. No, it's precisely people who live in states that are deprived, that are negligent of their populations, that don't meet even the basic, you know, sort of tenets of providing for the security and welfare of their people, where their citizens don't really feel like their identity is all that strong, even though it's the only thing they have geographically and ethnically. That's all they have. They have no choice but to submit to that state. But they know that that state hasn't done a whole lot for them, so they want something more. So they want to be and feel global. So I use the case of um, the Nobel Prize winner, Kailash Satyari, who together with, um, I think it was the same year as Malala, uh, won the Nobel Prize for, for children's rights. And, you know, this is something that he's been very articulate about. So, and again, anyway, none of what I just said is incompatible with the idea of tribal and national identity. Because as you know, a very substantial part of this book, if not the longest part of the book, is a defense of tribalism. I actually say, I, I celebrate, I literally celebrate, I literally was on the board of a, an NGO, um, independent diplomat, that supports secessionist movements. I am for, it's so ironic to read reviews of my work where people say this guy is like this cosmopolitan, you know, soulless, you know, nod, post-national wannabe. It's like, I literally have, actively gone to bat versus sessionism because the theory or the model is that the more nations you have, the more tribes, I actually say, let every tribe win. Let the tribes win is the title of a chapter of this book with an exclamation point. Because when you reach that point, when every tribe has its own state, you will find a flourishing of globalization because you will find that no tribe can survive on its own and all tribes actually. So I use the Catalans. The Catalans are my favorite example of a global tribe, a globalist tribe. From the outside, people hate the idea of Spain's part. Spain is the national identity. Spain is this historical civilization. It would be terrible for this multi multi uh, for for this uh, for this democratic liberal polity known as Spain if it were to splinter. Those Catalans, they're just ruffians, you know, the secessionist movement. What is wrong with them, right? Completely wrong. Right? There's nothing so immutable, inherent, eternal about the Spanish identity. It's a conglomeration of various nations and tribes that have been, that have been uh, subjugated over, the, over centuries by the monarchy. And the Catalans are the most globally outward people you'll meet in Spain. So they don't want to just yeah, cut Yeah, that's a great them. book, The uh, Basque History of the World. So the Basques are another great example of this, oh, right? Oh, sorry, I saw uh, switch yeah. province. No, that's okay. But, you know, they're, 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 there's, uh, they're analogous situations in some ways, and the Catalans are learning from the Basques. Um, but the point is that from the outside, it's so, this is, oh, here we go. We circle, this is very, uh, this connects to our secondhand pseudo-intellectual thing. Because every, you know, PhD armchair commentator is like, oh, terrible thing for the Basque to secede and so forth. Economically, by the way, it could potentially be, right? I'm not going to make, I'm going to put that aside for a minute. But in the intellectual conversation, defaults towards denying Catalans their right to push for an independent polity on the basis that would destroy this better thing known as Spain and that it is inherently tribal and tribal is bad. 
And I, by contrast, celebrate, I'm out, if I were Catalan, be waving the flag, because my point is that I just want to prove that Catalans are among the most global people, like the Basque history of the world, because they don't just want to secede from Spain in order to lock themselves up in a cage known as Catalan. They want to control their connectivity. They want more connectivity. They just want to be the masters of that connectivity. They don't want Madrid to decide what connections they build and don't build. They don't want Madrid making decisions about what investments they make and don't make. That's a beautiful thing. You sound like Nigel Farage talking about Brexit, though. I mean, no, but, superficially. Yeah, well, I, mean, I, I don't mean to. Not, I don't mean makes, that adversarially. I just. I'm just noticing as you're saying that it sounds sounds similar well, to so, people remember, saying we just want Great to control. Great Britain already is a sovereign yeah. country. Yeah. And he is appealing to obviously a, a vicious and narrow, you know, sort of chauvinistic nationalism. And on the one hand, and on the other hand, his both of his feet are made of clay. I mean, the other argument is obviously against the European Union stealing Britain's sovereignty and decision-making, which is also a total red herring. Yeah. So he's nonsense upon stilts, you know, as, uh, <laughs> as, as they liked, as Jeremy Bentham once said. Um, so that's rubbish. I don't know. I mean, I suppose I see what you're saying in terms of so who, it I sounds mean, would, like him to celebrate. But even I'm in talking an utopian future, you would, need, you would need controlled, controlled immigration somehow. Right? The utopian so future you, is one where those micro polities that have that village level and town level say over their fiscal expenditure um, you know, are able to make decisions at that level. You know, again, the Swiss have this. In, in my most recent little ebook that monographed technocracy in America, I celebrate Switzerland at the cantonal level. Um, you know, they 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 control a lot of things. Who gets to live in and out in a certain canton of Switzerland depends on uh, you know what tax you're willing to pay and what number of days you're willing to live there. And they don't necessarily have a uniform policy across Switzerland, right? So they actually evaluate people almost one by one in, in a very in a set of bureaucratic maneuvers. Even though, of course, federal governments set immigration policy, but at the cantonal level, they have soft ways of determining what kind of people live in their canton. And I think that's an example of like undermining, if you will, the federal sovereign prerogative over immigration policy. And I think that's a good thing. Um, so again, devolution is a very operative term in this book. And it's uh, something that I think is extremely important because locals do very often know best. Now, there's a whole separate question and series of questions that need to be asked. We're not going to do it now, but can you afford it? So. You know, the, the, a, a worthy retort to both Brexit and to Catalan independence is you just did something economically that could be very stupid, right? Exactly. That's something that's much more matter of fact. Yeah, even I if understand the urge for Brexit, yeah. but, but the price, is, even, even if you wanted that, if, yeah. would you, you would have to say, do you really want it for that price? <laughs> that's the thing. Which is part of what makes Nigel Farage, if he had three legs, the third leg of clay <laughs> is just his economic retardedness, you know, yeah. <laughs> because it was stupid by that measure, by any stretch. So, all right, I'll finish with a question that I learned from Jim Rogers, who's a, who's yeah. a fellow Singaporean. Yeah, I know, he uh, lives around the corner. Uh, he, he'd like to ask and answer this question, and I think it's a nice one. If there were five of you, Parag, where would you... Where would you live? You know, living out simultaneous lives. Well, Berlin, for sure. Berlin is like the coolest city in the world. And that's why uh, my family and I are picking up and uh, doing a sabbatical there this fall for four months. I lived there 20 years ago. 
as a single guy, as a graduate as undergrad. And now I'm going back 20, 20 years later with my whole family, kids in tow. So Berlin has only gotten cooler over time. So Berlin would be one. Um, London, you know, especially if you can afford it. <laughs> it's a great place to be, as you know. Uh, public spaces are glorious. Public historical monuments are just grand, you know. Uh, so More than 600 parks and squares. London is London. just beautiful. I used to, you know, we moved to Singapore from London. I definitely have a soft spot for London. I used to board a spike everywhere. And, you know, you can just, every corner you turn yields some rich, you know, sort of historical site, you know, to, to view and to, to ogle and to appreciate. So London, Berlin, um, Singapore, because obviously it's where we live now and it, it is sort of verifiably the smartest city, you know, the smartest government, the most uh, experimental when it comes to the relationship between technology and, and governance. And they're just better at it than everyone. Uh, you know, there isn't even a second place. So it's to live there is to live. They actually call themselves a living laboratory. When it's put on a marketing brochure, it sounds like a cliche. But I can tell you, someone who lives there, you actually live in a laboratory. And it, like in a good way. Give me an example. Like you woke up one. Like people I know in the Bay Area feel like they live in a laboratory because Google's trying stuff well, out on them. It is. But, you they, know, the number of people affected give me a by. Story. Well, remember that, you know, San Francisco sadly has like rising homelessness right uh you know so remember the number of people being that an experiment is taking place doesn't mean that everyone is affected no, by the corporate experiment. experiments right. you know it's google trialing their so, new gizmo right but this singapore is, this is, is, a, is a sovereign government policy. things that singapore does are for everyone yeah so remember it's not a western liberal democracy but it is a utilitarian sort of country now that doesn't mean that it doesn't have high inequality of course it does because it's a financial center with billionaires but their fiber optic broadband reaches every single home right public housing very wide transportation uh, network as well so the things that they do around sensor networks and gathering data and citizen feedback through these you know um, you know ipad touch screen you know response mechanisms and surveys that's just way beyond every other place in the world it's a very responsive government so so it just kind of brings a smile to your face when you see the smart things that they do and roll out like like practically every month. So they're just they're just light years ahead. What's years. something smart you saw lately? Well, they're experimenting literally with like, uh, you know, a, a passport that just prints out of a machine whenever you need a new uh, passport. Um, they're doing these uh, road sensors to, you know, sort of modulate traffic uh, rhythms and patterns. Um, they're going to start. There's a couple of driverless car test beds that have started now as well. Um, one of the most significant things is what they're doing in education. So now every kid has an online learning passport. So whether you take like some certificate or a Boy Scouts badge or whether you do one class at a polytechnic and one class in Coursera or one class at a university, it all goes into your online passport. And it's something that you keep and build and accrue for life. It's like your digital CV across institutions. And so you own it, not not any one institution. And you remember when you used to have to go to like the bursary or not the bursary, the registrar, sorry, the registrar to get your, your stamped like thing. Here it is all online and it doesn't cover just one institution because you used to have to go to every registrar. It's portable, it's yeah. It's portable and digital. So Singapore did that in six months, right? And every citizen has it. And so that kind of stuff, they're doing that kind of stuff all the time. 
And they try it. Really if cool. it doesn't work, they just you don't yeah. see it again. It disappears. Yeah. All right, so that's three. That's Berlin, London, Singapore. Um, so I'm a New Yorker. You know, you, you know, it's one of those things about identity. It's like like being an academic or a traveler. Yeah. Like once you're a New Yorker, you're always a New Yorker. I'll always be a New Yorker. My parents live in New York to this day. I just feel like even though, in fact, you know, according to the genuine economic vectors, New York is really changing. I mean, it's a big biotech hub. It's a tech hub. It's not just a financial hub. It's always been a media and publishing and communications hub. It's actually a very diversified place. But And they're doing a lot with urban planning. Look at Times Square and pedestrian streets. And even when just before we left, the whole Sunday Park Avenue being clear, you know, had started. So New York is changing, but not as fast as, you know, the the mega cities, you know, we're at this conference talking about mega cities. It, it, some, some, something about New York to me, all, you know, I go back very often, is still a bit too familiar. I would love to see it change more. And there is a parochialism. We think of New York as a global city, but quite frankly, if you've lived in London or Singapore, New York is an American international city. I agree. But cosmopolitan is not the word that comes to mind in New York, right? Uh, it's English or Spanish, right? <laughs> you know, and, and uh, maybe a bit more Mandarin. Russian out but, in yeah. uh, parts of Brooklyn. But, but people who don't, you know, there's a difference between international and cosmopolitan. New York is international. London is cosmopolitan. But that said, I'm a New Yorker. So that's, you know, put it on the list. Um, and one more? Ulaanbaatar. No. No, but I mean, for the sake of argument, because I like to provoke. No, not because I like to provoke. It's because I spent my childhood there. But Dubai. Um, and, and, and I emphasize it. There's a whole chapter of the, of the book on Dubai. And I go to great lengths You think that Dubai is more interesting than most people? Like, well, more well, who is most people? People, so, people don't get it. And you're well, trying to help them. And also, like, who's people? It's like the Daily Mail. Is, is Daily Mail people? Are the second-hand pseudo-intellectuals we've been talking about? Are they people? Like, again, I, I use data. In the book, I point out that in 2008, 2009, when there was a property crash in Dubai, there was there was a lot of this Dubai bashing, and people were said bye bye Dubai, Dubai good riddance, Newsweek, Daily Mail, again secondhand garbage, right? So I, I went and I looked at the exact numbers. I said, what was the population of Dubai in the year uh, British resident population of Dubai in the year 2009, and then what was it in 2013? You would think, based on the media accounts and uh, and the Dubai hating and bashing, uh, you know, chatterati that it would have fallen from 125,000 British nationals to like 50,000. Because remember, they were supposedly leaving their cars at the airport and getting on one-way tickets and getting the hell out of there. So, want to make a guess? Fancy a guess? Six. Six what? People. No, the number of British nationals living in Dubai over a four-year period when it was meant to have declined doubled to 250,000, right? During that four-year period. Doubled. Right. Are you hearing this? It doubled, right? Uh, so that's just one of many, many startling facts. Again, facts. It's always nice to talk about facts in this age of fake news about Dubai that people just don't understand. It's a place people love there. to hate for some reason. Well, again, who is people? I mean, uh, I liked... That's a great, that's for, a great for point. For better or worse, we have people. to have yeah. a hierarchy of credibility. Yeah. And the irony, this almost comes full circle as we're, as we're kind of winding down. Like It comes full circle because we started out talking about people who are given and accorded all of this authority, even though they deserve to have zero credibility because they don't know anything about the world. And when you go systematically through the data on Dubai and how it's really become a global capital 
It's the fastest growing city in the world. It's the ultimate melting pot in so many ways. And people loved who is who are like what what on a zero to ten scale, how much credibility do the people have who hate it? And all of the people who hate it fall at the zero end of the scale. And the people who actually know it love it. Why why are they not the people when you say the people love to hate it? Because actually people love to love Dubai. Dubai is empirically speaking the fastest growing loved city in the world because look how people vote with their feet and move there. The population doubles every 10 to 15 years and they're coming from all over the world. They're coming from America, they're coming from Britain, they're coming from Iran, they're coming from India, Pakistan, China. Chinese population has tripled, right? So who is people? And I think I think it's extremely important that we now have a credibility index for everyone who purports to have authority. Because when the authority is zero, I don't think that we should just generalize because it means that we're living in a filter bubble. You know, you just said the people love to hate it because you you what I knew I know that you know that we're referring to the, the people who have the loudest megaphone, which is to say the people who are the editors or the writers for the Daily Mail or Newsweek. But they're not the people. You know, the people are what are the nine billion people in the world doing or, or saying. And what I just as I claim in the book, for five billion people, Dubai is like their North Star. You know, it's the motive, it's the country, it's the city that's motivating entire countries to change their economic models and to invest in infrastructure and to reform their economies. It's not because they're inspired by Theresa May or Donald Trump. It's Dubai. So that's the people. So I I put Dubai on the list because I actually know the place. I've known it for 40 years. I know it very well. I've seen it change. It's if you know people (laughs) in Dubai and you don't have a good time, interesting conversation, you're there, it's definitely your fault. Yeah. I mean, I can see you're, you're moved by the place. I mean, mm. You really speak. It's not, I'm just getting, I'm not even yeah. trying to be argumentative. I control all the facts in the debate about Dubai. It's almost a one-way conversation, but I'm being argumentative in the sense that I have to, you have to make that extra effort to correct the misperception and therefore you get a little bit more animated than when everyone is speaking the same language. So the last question, and this is, this is, a, this is a Peter Thiel interview question. <laughs> I like to steal other people's good questions. I collect, it's Fair one of the enough. things I collect, other people's questions. Peter is very quotable. He is, he is. Um, so he apparently asks people in interviews, what's something that's obviously true in your eyes, but which very few people agree with you about? That like Dubai is a that's great so, global city. Yeah, I guess that's yours. <laughs> I guess that's you've answered it. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, the thing is that, uh, okay, well, apparently globalization is in grave decline and in terminal decline, and World War Three is about to break out because 2014 was the new 1914. So apparently, the real truth and conventional wisdom is that the world is falling apart. And that's obvious to everyone. Uh, And I seem to be the outlier in believing the opposite because I see a flourishing of globalization. Uh, I see a lot of evidence pointing in that direction. And And people handling it better bit by bit. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I just published... People, who's people? States, governments. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I just, I mean, to to be a bit more rigorous about it, my brother and I, uh, he's a physicist, mathematician, 
hedge fund manager. Uh, we just published our first article together. Decades, we never published that anything. We never thought about it. Then we did. And it was about global volatility. And we're like, you know, actually, all of this talk about coming crash of this and coming crash of that, turns out we actually manage volatility very well. And there's actual reasons for that, coordinated reasons and, and policy reasons that because of our negative short-term bias, presentism, whatever one wants to call it, uh, we ignore good news and positive things that we're doing. So, you know, to, to, to take the Peter Thiel question, you know, so it's obvious to me that globalization is absolutely fine and is expanding in countless, you know, in many ways, immeasurable, intangible, and yet perceivable ways that are very good for the world. But that doesn't seem obvious to the people, because very often when we talk about the people, we mean that very, very narrow filter bubble of, um, you know, a sup- voices that supposedly represent the 10% of the world population that is the you know white western lower middle income working class which is itself incredibly disingenuous because we know how divorced these editors and writers are from that reality anyway so the kind of nationalist populist ideology i have maybe emotional sympathy for because i definitely feel bad for people whose material circumstances have deteriorated or perceived to be or their identity they feel that it's under threat i have every sympathy for that but i have no sympathy for the logical chain that they use to blame you know globalization forces for their circumstances because it's illogical and false at every step of the way good on that note, I think your driver is here to whisk you off to an airport to you know, but go it's, somewhere. But don't be jealous. It's not one of those like black armored Mercedes AMG tinted window like, uh, you know, uh, trucks. It's like a Skoda. <laughs> <laughs> but you wouldn't have it any other way. You're probably talking to him about yeah, I'm a supply chain of the people. What's your favorite question to ask taxi drivers? Uh, it depends on where I, I am. I mean, I... You know, I, I suppose there is the sort of proverbial conversation with the taxi driver. I've had a lot more of them than most people, uh, obviously. And I really enjoy those conversations. But just to, you know, the taxi driver is one sort of like genre of local that has been very helpful to me over the years. And many other locals, fixers. They've and, saved and, your life many and, times. <laughs> you know, fixers, waiters and waitresses, uh, you know, all sorts of types. But the, this, so this taxi driver, when you say taxi driver, it, to me it, it connotes all of those wonderful locals who you don't know you're going to meet until the day you arrive somewhere and every day that you stay somewhere. And I've got great memories of the, of the Ukrainians and the Serbians and the... Colombians and the Indonesians that I've met over the years randomly. Uh, and they, to me, are the, the, the so-called the taxi driver, in quotes. So I, I ask, I, I interrogate the, that taxi driver for as long as they'll talk to me. And it's amazing how their views contradict, you know, the officials and the elites uh, that I will have inevitably just spoken to four minutes earlier or I'm about to go talk to four minutes later. And so it's not the question that I ask them, it's the questions that they give me. Because 
not, I don't, and I don't mean the questions they ask me, but when they give me a critical view of their country, <laughs> I take that into my next conversation. You're on the way to meet with the Minister yeah, of Economics. Exactly. And I've just gotten a great accusation <laughs> about the economic circumstances of the country from a taxi driver. Or again, it could be a waiter, it could be a fixer. And then I, that, adds, that gets added immediately to my list of things that I'm going to talk about with the minister. So I benefit a lot from the taxi drivers. And I appreciate the time that they give me. Well, here's to taxi drivers. Barack, thanks, man. It's always great to see you. Great to see you, too. Cheers. That was the main conversation. And um, I wanted to throw in here because I like doing a little coda to the podcast. I did that last time with Neil French telling a story from his days in Thailand. And I think the one I'll throw in here with Parag um, was at the very beginning when I just started rolling the tape and we were talking about uh, the technicalities of modern life and I was talking about the, um, you know, doing my podcast and he was telling me about how he would do Facebook Live uh, broadcasts and he's got a lot of followers and he learned some things from that and I just thought his aside to me about Facebook Live and how you need at least a million followers in modern life to be worth a damn maybe a slight exaggeration I thought that was pretty interesting so I'll just throw that in here it's a two minute two minute discussion between Prague and me there's a background din which the audio engineer is called room tone. I learned a lot about it. I like to do this stuff myself. It's my sort of equivalent of pottering around a workshop in when, the old days. You when, know? when I started doing Facebook Live videos, I learned how to at least attach a microphone to my thing and use the Facebook Live app. And I felt like suddenly I joined the 21st century. <laughs> how often do you do them? I used to do more, but that's because I was uh, under contract with Facebook through this public... Uh, this program they have called Mentions, and there's a it's a different app actually. It's a different app than the Facebook app, but it's called Facebook Mentions. And then they they give you your passwords and your logins, and then they track your things in a certain way. There's a whole separate like team, and then they promote for you because they they want people who do not just like pet photos, you know, and stuff. Um, so, but as a result, so you're getting a, a subsidized advertising of your content but Facebook is getting to say hey look it's not all pet photos it's also like you know Prague and Jeremy having a serious conversation about the world you know uh, so I, I did a lot but I've kind of toned pared back I just don't have, don't have time to commit to like a fixed quantity of videos every month you know what kind but of they are doing a great get? job well the way in which they kept on you know by, by promoting the page over time I'm now at almost 400,000 total uh, views yeah like oh no likes on the page ah okay so meaning like anything i do when views. i even if i post an article or blow my nose like technically 400,000 people get the notification but what i my rough estimate is that you need a million people before anyone even notices what you've done so for that's, example that's the, at any that's given the end, time the price of when i go if i do a prime time live video meaning like let's say east coast evening and i'm somewhere else in the world or i'm on the east coast but the point is like est 9 p.m is like a prime facebook time if i do a video at that time and 400,000 people get the notification at most i'll have 25 people watching live 
So to really get anywhere with face with like a real audience, well, you need to have like a million followers, and then the, the then the okay. there's like this uh, feedback loop, where of those million, maybe you'll have 50 watching live, but now 50 is more than 25, and of those 50, there's a higher likelihood that people are going to share from that 50, and then 50 becomes 100 and 200. Yes, minutes. yeah, you start to get the the long. My tail. buddy Jason Silva, you know, who's got shows on National Geographic and stuff, great guy. He's got well over a million followers. When he wakes up in the morning and picks up his camera and does like, oh, it's up early, what's up? I feel like I'm in a trance and like <laughs> technology is like really cool. He gets hundreds of thousands of people live, like that very instant, instantaneously. Yeah. Instantaneously, hundreds and thousands. How much fun that must be. All right, that's it until next time. I'm going to continue the fade out with this same song, which might be familiar to you, but the original has lyrics and the voice is immediately identifiable. So it seemed like a lot more fun to leave it out and see if you can identify it from the instrumental version alone. So long. <laughs>